You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, and uh, she knows it already, but I'm super excited to have Lauren Bright Pacheco on uh, the show. Um, Lauren, welcome to Something Rather Than Nothing. Thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's, it's been a very uh, something I've been very much looking forward to. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I um, uh, So listeners know... Um, I know Lauren's voice initially from uh, her um, uh, her reporting, uh, from her uh, work in production on uh, great uh, programs such as uh, Murder in Oregon, Murder in Illinois, Happy Face Presents, Two Face, and uh, we're reaching uh, Lauren from uh, New York City, and uh, she has a background. Uh, in, in TV, and uh, she's received three Emmy Awards as a daytime TV producer. However, Lauren, you were saying when we are talking about the career in that piece, you're saying you're recovering from that. So you had a, a lot of deep experience in, the, in, in that production, but now you're an award-winning uh, podcaster. So how did this all happen? You know, it's it's actually interesting. Looking back, it all makes sense. I can't say at any point in my career I've ever really felt I've known exactly what I was doing or supposed to have been doing at the time. Um, but that's part of the growth process as sure. well, I guess. So I um, got a graduate de- degree in um, theatrical production, and I was an English major. Yes. And um, so I... I Spent some early years in New York City. I actually was in a comedy group for a period of time. And um, some people might be familiar with a comedy group called Broken Lizard. And it was a bunch of guys I had gone to college with. And they went on to make movies like Club Dread and uh, the remake of The Dukes of Hazard. And I went into broadcast journalism and was a reporter for a number of years for Food Network and then went into local television in New York and ended up working in daytime television. And as a daytime television producer, yes, I, I, I have the distinction of being awarded a couple of Emmys, but the dubious distinction uh, is the fact that those Emmys came from the Dr. Oz show, which hits a little different now in this political landscape. Sure. sure <laughs> it did sure. at the time. You can't, um, the world is bigger than us, you know. So. The world is bigger than us, but but at the time I was working for Dr. Oz, he was a daytime television doctor as opposed to um, an aspiring politician. Sure. And I, because that's the way ratings work, ended up working on a lot of true crime on that show. Even though it was a health show, there was a salacious and voracious appetite for true crime content. I'm first and foremost a storyteller, yeah, yeah. but I've always been drawn to human emotion and stories. And true crime and medical stories give you tremendous potential for both of those things. Um, 
I think that what I found so frustrating about creating tape for television is I had to condense people into these pithy sound bites. There is an expectation, particularly in daytime television, that you have the audience attention for maybe a minute and 45 to two minutes and 30 seconds if it's going to be you know, rolled into uh, a studio show. And so that means that you had to get people to tell you their life story in 20 second sound bites. And that's very difficult to get a deep understanding of the human experience if it's the Cliff Notes version. Yeah. Well, I even my question at the beginning, I'm thinking like, it's a it's like casting the wide net. Like, how the heck do you get, you know, you go from that and doing the podcasting. But, you know, I think there's something in 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 listening to um your programs, you know, that you write, uh, research and and do where you end up connecting with somebody's mind or how they tell the story and how what what that narrative is. And uh, I think it's fun to look at what would be the hard fact crass details that you can bump into of murder, corruption, cover up, deep injustice and, and, and those type of thing, but also the creative component of trying to create some sort of coherent way of saying things that don't feel right, no matter what, like you can't look at the stories that you presented and like, you can feel okay about components of it, what people do in response and try to make the situation better, but you can't look at the blunt facts and be like, wow, look what humans are doing. Look at what we're doing. And like, it's, there's a darkness to it. And, um, how do you use your background, uh, you know, in, in, in hearing about theater and, in in the narration, how do you lean into that creativity to tell these compelling stories? Well, I think it's a really necessary ingredient because particularly in podcasting, so just to double back one second, the way in which I got into podcasting is daytime television, you have a hiatus, a number of weeks each year that the show is dark. And so a lot of producers take other jobs. And I was offered a job with a rival show. My show didn't want me to take it. And so they asked if I would be willing to make a podcast with one of the um, contributors on the show, who is Melissa Moore, who is the daughter of Keith Hunter Jesperson, the happy face killer. And so the first podcast I ever tackled was Happy Face. And I was pretty lucky because the trailer for that podcast, so before the podcast even came out, the trailer went to number two across all genres. The trailer? Um, The trailer. Um, And (laughs) it was fittingly a a ghost story. And I say that because um, I don't remember if I told you this before or after we started um, recording, but my grandmother, my mother's mother, my granky was the best ghost storyteller ever. And that was the number one thing you looked forward to when we would visit. She would, if we were lucky, would agree to sleep in between us on the bed until we fell asleep. And then she, you know, snuck out. But she would tell us stories that just captivated our imagination and chilled our our bones just enough, Um, but not so much that we couldn't sleep that night. 
And um, leave that to Hollywood. (laughs) Exactly. It was an incredible talent and skill she had, and one that I grew up really valuing and one that I very much miss. And so it was fitting that that trailer really was a ghost story um, that Melissa remembered from her her childhood and her interactions with her father. Um, But I really wasn't familiar with podcasts, so I didn't know what I should be creating. And that was the biggest blessing in the world because I wasn't trying to emulate anything. I was trying to share a story and had the liberty, you know, the, 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 um, really the joy of being able to do so in a way that I didn't have to condense the personal story into a 20 second pithy soundbite. And so it was really liberating for me. But because I'm a television producer, I wanted to create something you could watch with your eyes closed. And so I I like to say that I create very visual podcasts. I like that description. Thanks for saying those words out loud, just thinking deliberately to do that connected to what you produce. Yeah. Soundscaping is so important. And I don't think I'm really blessed to work with a teeny tiny team, um, three uh, editors, and they are all musicians. And um, they have that incredible gift for soundscaping. And they understand, you know, I, I, I want to be able to see the story as I listen to it. And I, I think that my latest um, podcast, the one we just finished, Murder in Miami, um, does that to a level that I'm, I'm very proud of um, and so blessed that I have a team that was willing to to go the extra mile to, to bring it to fruition. They're just yeah, great. I, I remember the other question I'll ask, but I want to I talk a little bit more. Your, yeah, your team is amazing, and I hear their names on series over times, you know, Taylor, Taylor Shacoin is my co-EP and he is just a great creative hipster musician, musician, editor, incredibly talented guy lives in Athens. And then Evan Tyre um, is in Brooklyn, a friend of his. And then Nick Carter, who started working with us on Murder in Miami, is in LA and he does a lot of the soundscaping you hear. So if you um, hear the story of our 83-year-old cocaine smuggler, Happy Miles, flying into a storm cloud and you can hear the plane shaking. That's that's Nick, Nick Harder. Yeah, thank you for uh, mentioning those folks and grab the opportunity because uh, the the work, you know, the combined work, but uh, that that's a big piece of, of the whole the whole feel. And I say that in the real sense of the word, the feel uh, of the show and the way that you describe. It's, it's also such a team effort. Um, and that's something else that I really love about podcasting. I know it's said a lot and it sounds cheesy, but it is really such, um, a supportive close knit community on some levels and particularly the team that I work on. There's no ego involved. It's just a shared creative effort. And that's, that's very unique. Yeah. And that's, that's such an important point. And it's one that I can say professionally that, you know, I, I can recognize the deep importance of having that 
creative connection um in sustained over time as well so yeah great um absolutely uh a fantastic job uh team but the the one piece um before we had to finish you know tell a little bit more about the podcast and was the 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 thread between the creative you know your 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 study and your head around the creative and um kind of like the 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 details um within because here's and i'll try to explain it the best way i can very briefly when i hear the shows that you do and i'm listening to murder in miami right now it's an entertaining story and when you have an entertaining story tied to things like this and there's pieces of pop culture you're like I feel like a little bit dirty, like, cause I'm like, like I, you know, cause like you feel like when we, when we're entertained, when we're moved along in that narrative way, we sometimes can be like, wait a second, you know, on the true crime, just that crass element of fact, um, the show and what you do is right in that territory. So I've been really interested in that creative versus well, the guts. So one, um, as as I said, I, I I don't approach true crime from a salacious standpoint. I, I I I am I am never going to just do emotional and gore rubbernecking. But I also understand the profound importance of earning someone's ear, and so I know that if I have content that I want someone to take the time to not just consume, but to contemplate, and I want it to resonate, it has to be worth their time. I am always so aware of every single second that goes into an episode because you're really earning someone's trust that it's worth their time, but you also are asking for their ear. And that's such a tremendous... Um, responsibility i feel as 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 a producer and as a narrator because i want someone to feel like it's time well spent so i go very very to, to, to very great lengths to make sure that the story is as tight as it can be, that it's as entertaining as it can be. I like to write in and out of sound bites in a very specific way because they're not just being inserted there as filler. They're very, very purposefully picked and crafted. And, and I feel that that's all part of the, the ultimate package. So that kind of creativity comes with a great deal of discipline as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, uh, I, I would say everybody too, as when the, you've caught their ear, you also have the classic uh, cliffhanger component audio idea at the end of it. Whereas when folks execute like that, you like you got people hanging on for the next one. It, it feels like a classic style in that sense, and I love that the almost detective piece to it. Oh, I appreciate that. You know what I I, I think that. Um... I think that that comes a bit from television, but it also comes a lot from my my dad, who was also a great storyteller, but he was a lawyer as well. So uh -huh. I kind of feel like at the end of- <laughs> Tell the story at, that wins. <laughs> yes. I feel that at the end of every episode, I have to make my case for why people should want to tune into the next. Yeah. So I, I got to, um, I'm going to- I'm going to have to ask you, uh, so we're going to, we're going to jump into a couple art questions, but before I do that, I wanted to tell you, um, 
a, a weird fact about me. I've lived a strange and interesting life. Uh, I've lived in different areas of the country. I've worked as a labor organizer, worked in a lot of politics, been around some significant events. And, uh, and, um, one of the one of the strange facts about me is I, I've never really been in like TV or done acting or anything like that. I'm just like this character or something. But <laughs> I was uh, in Washington D.C. Actually, just outside of Washington D.C. If people are familiar, um, Arlington, Virginia. And at the time, there was this uh, brew pub called Bardo's, and it was this old uh, auto car dealership, but it had been refashioned into a pool place. I'm going to skip way ahead on this story but from beginning to end basically i ended up as an extra on a tv show and uh so i didn't even know at the beginning we were just approaching like we need an extra for our show downstairs we're doing a shoot when i'm in my early 20s i'm like what the heck are they asking us to do where are we going (laughs) and so we go down there and uh, we still don't know what the show's about, and we're trying to find out, like, what are we extras for? And they pay us in, like, two pitchers of beer and some, like, fries. And they're looking at us for wardrobe, and they're like, uh, this is America's Most Wanted. Fox hit show America's Most Wanted. We want you in this scene. And I'm like, all right. So now I'm in my head, and my head's already, like, buzzing. I'm like... Well, what look do they want between each of us, right? So they look at my friend and they give him a silver shirt or something. They give another guy, my other friend, John, a hat and scruff his hair up. They look at me. They're like, you're fine. And I'm like, wow, what an (laughs) affirmation. I'm like, I've stumbled upon America's Most Wanted set and I don't need wardrobe. And I'm a perfect extra in front of the guy sitting on the pool table who's going to kill his girlfriend in the next scene. <laughs> that was my, well, I guess, I guess it's either, you know, a compliment or, or a call. I've to never known what it is. Wardrobe. I've been rattled. I've been rattled ever since. I've never known. I've never known what happened. To me. But it, I, there's one other piece though. Um, I'm looking across, but we were, we were approached, I guess you would call, but there's the group of three young women. One's wearing this very ostentatious hat, like somebody's like an actress or doing something wild and make eye contact. And I'm not even trying to make eye contact. Like I'm drinking my beer. I'm eating like vegetarian chili. And the first thing she said when she came up to us was, do you want to do a shoot? And I don't know if these, these gals are, and I don't know if they were talking like shooting up or something, or they were like, and then I'm like, realized quickly it was lingo they're just hey you want to you know hop on the film and um it was such a strange like at the beginning i'm like no we're like totally cool here i don't know you you're very bizarre looking but that's how i was recruited two pitches of beer and a bucket of french fries uh, that's an awesome story. I've always, you know, been so curious for people who do those reenactment scenes if they end up getting accused of being the actual criminals, you know, if they're <laughs> Maybe out that's in why I've had trouble. Maybe that's <laughs> why I've had trouble for 30 years because everybody's seen me on the street remembers that scene and they're creeped out by me and don't know why. <laughs> They can't quite place it, oh, but they goodness. think they remember you from a pool hall. Oh, that's oh. funny. Yes, awesome. that was that was I. I thought of that uh, once or twice in, uh, in in listening to your show. I got to tell her the America's Most Wanted 
uh, story. So I wanted to ask uh, some of the the big art questions. This is something rather than nothing show. And, you, you know, you obviously think a ton about what you do creativity, creative, creatively and, you know, how you spend your time. One of the uh, one of the questions I ask is, when did you see yourself as a as as an artist or if it's easier as a as a creator people look at themselves different way but when did you see that that's that's who you were that's what you were doing you know that's a really great question i i think um because as i mentioned you know i i grew up very much emulating the storytelling skills of my my grandmother and yeah. knowing that that was of incredible value and and even though she didn't have some kind of highfalutin career or live um a very prosperous life she had that incredible wealth of creativity and as a kid i gravi- gravitated to that um so i remember writing my first play when okay. i was in the third grade and of course it was very self-serving because i wrote it for myself and my best friend at the time and oddly enough i gave us both leads in the play of course it it didn't it wasn't very well written and it didn't ever end up making the stage that's but... okay third grade lauren it's okay <laughs> it's fine <laughs> You tried your best at that moment. Nothing else could have happened. It was important enough that I that it was something that I had to, uh, you know, filter through the papers when my parents ended up moving from from the home that they had raised their five kids in. So I always knew that I wanted to create stories and I was always writing poetry, which sounds so um, pompous, but... Um, no, no, it's good. It's good. But but I also knew both sides of uh, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah. Um, the, you know, radio friendly version and the naughty one oh, by yeah. the time I was in the fourth grade. So Cassette I considered, yes, I considered that poetry as well. Sure and, was. Um, sure is. Oh, my gosh. The biggest thrill ever was I was lucky enough to. Um, produce a podcast called Speed of Sound, which you yeah, would love. Yeah, yeah with, I've listened. Um, I've listened. Oh my to gosh, that. Steve Greenberg is just like oh, it's a great show. Love musical. that oh, love that show, and yeah. got to track down the um, living members of the Sugar Hill Gang. And I didn't hear that one. Them. All right, I'll send it to you. It's so <laughs> good. It's it's the birth of hip hop. It's it's a really great episode, and Steve. Steve is just the kind of person I would wine and dine just to sit across the table and listen to him tell just stories. Just listen. Yeah. Just, just, oh, just, just be the sponge taking the he, info, right? He, he's the guy behind who let the dogs out. It was his, his vision that that would be the song that would take over the world. And I will be hard pressed to get through a week without hearing that song in some way, shape or form. Um, and he it worked. Found, it yep, worked. The dogs he discovered. The dogs Hansen, are out. <laughs> exactly. Discovered Hanson. Discovered um, the Jonas Brothers, and um, AJR. And he's just. A no, visionary. wait a second. AJR. AJR was on uh, that song record player. Uh, yes, Daisy the that, Great. 
Yes, Daisy the Great. Uh, my goodness. Um, we're going to bounce a bit here. But yes, uh, <laughs> I recognize that name from that track, which once you listen to, you've listened to 25 times and have to put it aside. And then you go back to it like you said you wouldn't go back to it after a couple of days, but you do. Oh my gosh. Did I send you the video for that too? The anime? It's, I checked it's, it's it out. It's a great video. It's a great I checked video. it out. But you were talking about, you're talking about on that show and the different folks uh, that, that he's, that he's worked with. And uh, no, I've listened to that. I haven't heard the, the Sugar Hill uh, gang one, but I was, I was of the age too. And um, I was about, uh, I was born in 72. So early eighties um, rap as it was called, you know, it's just rap, rap music. And I remember, uh, you know, I was I was a break dancer when I was like 11, 12, trying to be a white boy break dancer. And so I was so immersed into the culture of the time. It was the best. We'd get uh, cassette tapes. Somebody's brother would go down to New York City from Providence, Rhode Island on a bus, get the cassette tape or whatever they're playing down in Brooklyn or whatever. They'd be back up and then they make copies of that tape that week. You know what's playing down in New York City because it's not like now there was like. A no, no, songs. you you no. had you know Disco marketing. Marketing was being selling those cassettes and 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 um, you know records out of the back of trunks. But you yep. will love that episode, particularly given your interest in that time. Awesome, but I'm yeah, drop so into that. yeah. By fourth grade, I was I was memorizing every single word of Rapper's Delight. So I think I always knew, to be perfectly honest that I wanted to create content that resonated with people and held their attention. Yeah. I, I went to um, college and was an English major, theater minor. Um, I went to, um, as I said, a graduate school for theatrical production and, and, and knew that I just wanted to create content. What school did you go to for a theatrical production? London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Oy vey. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> which was which was a, a, a nice experience to live outside uh, of the United States for a little while, too. And I got to travel. Um, and then I came back, and I ended up um, moving back to New York and and working there and staying there in radio and television. And so because I started out in radio, I really feel like podcasting is full circle in a weird way. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I like to see, um, the, the story, like the formats and the storytelling of how you tell a story. I think I've become interested in it because I never expected to do stuff on audio myself, you know, and it's like, um, on there's one bit, there's one bit about what you said about going in and doing podcasting, which I really connect to because I was talking to somebody about this, that when I started podcasting, I didn't even like podcasts. Like I like some of them. I liked a few and like nothing against it, but I wasn't like down with it. I wasn't hearing a ton where I'm like, this is like this medium or something. I didn't understand it. I wasn't that much into it. Um, so I didn't listen to much except anyone they did on Richard Simmons, like that Finding Richard Simmons one. I lost my mind over that one. I probably listened to it five times. But um, but I, I didn't know. So when I went into this doing a podcast, which is a curious thing for anybody to try, I didn't know anything whatsoever about 
structure outside of maybe how I might structure it or maybe how they did on 60 Minutes or how Johnny Carson did it or whatever, like however you talk to people and, and do that type of thing. But it became really interesting to me because as I've done it, I've been connected more with the collective aspect of it, like the organizing, the how do I get to talk to somebody from Wellington, New Zealand, a Maori writer who does science fiction? How did that happen? And how does that happen now at this time in like complete potential? So journey going using a medium at first to do something and then engaging within it and saying, holy shit, I got on the right street, right? Like the traffic's over there. Like I'm on a good street here and just staying on, on that street. But I found it very interesting to say when you bopped over it, you had some leverage. It sounded like in getting, you know, the show and they wanted you to do the show and not compete. And then you pulled it together the way that you felt it should go together as a story. Right. And that's how you learned it. Yeah, I think that also my um, strength or value, I think, as a producer in television um, really was I was always more interested in the people rather than the story or the ratings the story could generate. I really care deeply about the people who entrust me with sharing their story. And, and I think because of that, it made it um, easier for me to create content that had an emotional pull, even without the visual cues. Yeah. You know, you, you, can, you can watch an interview on television and see from the cutaways of the of of the producer or the the reporter interviewing the person that you were being prepped for an emotional question or and you don't really have those um you know smoke and mirrors with with audio there has to be an authenticity there has to be something behind it yeah <laughs> yeah there has to be a connection not just with the people speaking, but with the listener as well. And so I think that because I've always taken that responsibility to heart, that maybe plays into the authenticity of the the content. Yeah, I, I, I and that, that, that authenticity and you connect into the human piece of it. I do a lot of human to human work. And I think about like this idea of like, like interviewing or conversation and like, I don't know what other conversation, it sounds strange to say, I don't know what type of conversations other people like have. Like if I look on like podcasting and the content and just maybe in my show, it's six days of, which is a big thought and all that type of thing. But the other piece is, is that being a labor organizer and actually repping tens of thousands of workers who when they talk to me, I have to establish a quick relationship with them, be of help and advocacy and understanding and compassion and advocate. So whatever I can be handed in that realm is anything in the world, including the psychological state of the person who's experiencing the work trouble, the addictions. I'm not, it's not, all, it's not all dour. There's glory in these type of things, but I'm saying in the, in the needs, in the conversation. So 
I found myself prepped to have any conversation in the entire world. Like, and when I go on the street, people talk to me about stuff. You, you, you'd be surprised. I don't know if it happens to you, but like people just like, Hey, this, and I'm like, why me? You don't know me. And I kind of look like a strange guy and I don't sound like I'm from around here. I'm from the other side of the country, (laughs) but um, I just found that dynamic so uh, fascinating to me of how you have a conversation and with your background, the amount of people you would come in contact with, uh, all different parts of society, how you're able to have a conversation. There's just something to it that's – if it's authentic, there's something to it there that's kind of tough to describe. Well, you know what? I think that honestly, to be a great conversationalist, you have to be an even better listener. And and I think that people know um, when they're being listened to. Um, yeah. I, and and interestingly enough, um, I I do think that there is a lot of content out there. There is no shortage of podcasts where it's literally just two people shooting the shit over a microphone. And, and sometimes it does feel like content for the sake of content sake that, that they're just trying to fill time because they have to have a daily amount of, but I, when I listen to your podcast, it's so, there's so much thought and, um, appreciation that goes into the topics and the people that you pick before you even utter a word to them. So, so I think that it's that intention as, as well. And I think you attract a very specific listener for that reason. And, and I think that, you know, look, there are plenty of uh, people who do want to listen to podcasts to kill time. They're, other people who really want to invest their time in listening to something and want it to reward them with a greater understanding or knowledge. And so that's, that's really what I think you're creating. And I, I appreciate and value that. I, I I appreciate uh, what you have to say and it, it does mean a lot and I have no trouble telling you that. Um, and and I think that's the piece here in, in, in being able to talk about podcasting and, um, you know, a connection we probably have is not only to do, to do, to produce, but there's larger, there's larger issues like at hand. So I was thinking in, in, in thinking about um, seeing your work and having chatted before about uh, justice and the philosophical backdrop for this in some of my training. So my training is in uh, English lit, yay, English lit forever, <laughs> uh, in philosophy. Um, and I studied philosophy, I got a master's in philosophy at Marquette University. I did my labor studies uh, over at the University of Massachusetts, uh, master's in science. Um, but, uh, one of the, one of the things I wanted to say was, uh, at Marquette, I studied, uh, Plato. We had to study four big philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, boom, boom, Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas and, uh, Immanuel Kant. We had to study those four and I'm glad I studied uh, each of them, but within Plato, there's this, you know, kind of common or grand idea is that, you know, there's this great work, the Republic. Um, which is a massive work popular in Western culture about basically about what is justice, right? And the psychological idea 
um, literary folks or philosophers put out is that Plato sees an unjust society in Greece. That unjust, faulty society kills a great man like Socrates who is seeking truth. What's wrong, right? So this work psychologically is thought to be what type of society is just and which one doesn't kill Socrates, but elevate Socrates in, in, in the curious mind. And so I become just really uh, deeply interested in the stories you tell, but the, the, the underlying question of the belief in justice, the belief in what, what is just and what is right. And in your reporting, the difficult but important exposure to there ain't no fucking justice anywhere that you're seeing. I remember your description of one story, like you, you uncover another thing. You're like, good gosh, there's another layer here that somebody didn't do or, or another layer that celebrated this false story or, and so I think like that's such at the nub. And I know what you talk about is, is, is justice. And I don't mind that. It's a big, it's a big backdrop for the question. Cause it's, Plato is trying to, you know, what is justice? But what does that drive in your investigation and you doing podcasts uh, for justice? What's that mean for you uh, now? Where's that fit in the story that you're telling that there are some wildly unjust, wrong structures and practices, say, in the United States? Well, um, you know, I, I think that a, a great deal of my personal drive comes from the fact that I mentioned that my dad was an attorney, but um, he also was a ridiculously good one. He was first from Colgate, you know, second from Harvard Ooh. Law. He was um, editor of the Harvard Law Review, and then he was um, head of the... Um, chair of the board of ethics for the New York State Bar Association. And I remember going to his corner office, you know, with dark mahogany and yeah. leather. And above all was this gigantic um, drawing of a lawyer standing in front of a cowering um, man in rags, basically, and justice behind him holding a scale and a blindfold. And I always thought that the legal system was put in place to protect the weak and the vulnerable. And very much believed that everybody um, involved with the law on both sides of law enforcement and 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 the judicial aspect had everyone's best interests in mind. I was really naive. <laughs> and I think that that um, as I've had the opportunity to really tackle more um, convictions, um, you really realize how broken the system is. When you realize the number of potential wrongful convictions and that when, unfortunately, our system decides that you're guilty, 
it is designed to move forward at lightning pace. But when it realizes that it's made a mistake, it will double down and it corrects itself at the pace, I like to say, of a frozen slug. It takes... Um, there's a great organization that's a Jesuit, uh, founded by a Jesuit priest called Centurion, and it's one of the oldest innocence organizations. And I think their stats are that, in general, if someone is actually innocent, so in cases of actual innocence, it takes on average eight years and $350,000 to get that person out of prison. And that's with actual innocence. It's 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 almost difficult to comprehend either side of it. Time, time, and money. I I I um am been um, fortunate enough to get to fill in for a man named Jason Flom, who has an incredible podcast called Wrongful Conviction. Yeah, and yeah. I, I've guested for him. Um, Great job, by and, the way. I heard it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Um. The last one that I just taped, which hasn't aired yet, is a man named Lamar Johnson, who was wrongfully convicted in um, Missouri and spent 20, nearly 29 years in prison. And they knew between the time he was convicted and sentenced that two other people had actually committed the murder and had admitted to it. 28 years uh, you know, uh, 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 it's you know, like what's the mechanism when you look on the outside? I, I, I've heard some of your descriptions. It's like this frustration of looking at. It. Like, is there a key that unlocks? Like, is there a truth key? Like, is there a here? The things are here that shows it was not the case. Can we put it into the? Can we? And there's you can't put, you know, pay to enter. <laughs> Well, but you know what? I think it goes back to, you know, Plato and Socrates. When you are asking the big questions and you are up against a system where they're like, the system is the system and the system works because it's a system and there's prison for profit and you have prosecutors who are allowed to incentivize witness testimony. That's allowed. You know, you can't do that for the defense. You can't get somebody to, you know, go on the stand and lie because you're paying them. And get yeah, away with they, it legally, but well, I mean, the prosecutors can, and they're more well, interested in winning than in justice. Yeah. And and that's that. And I, I didn't mean to to jump in there, but I mean the, the the you know what I was I was able to see. I remember uh, I lived in the D.C. area in the '90s and all those super crime, super predator like that ethos and stuff. It was fucking disgusting. It was like I couldn't believe how many. Like I could palpably see, and I'm not, this is not like anti-cop thing. I'm not getting into all that. I'm saying like, I could actively see patrols all the time in a regular working class neighborhood. I was like, there's so many cops like all around here in DC. I'm like, my goodness. It was, and that explosion of prosecutions. And um, I did some deep research on uh, what you're talking about of the, the private money incentive within prisons and uh, prison labor. So it was just, you know, I'm a labor union guy, right? So obviously going to get pissed off at 13 cents an hour of labor of people mm -hmm. who are getting shoved into prisons who haven't done anything wrong. But it was this acceleration that I've seen over the like last 20, 25 years and quick changes. And um, for me, it feels that it's accelerated a 
a problematic core, like mm-hmm. in, in t- with with private money, like to buy a stock on a on a stock market at a value and potentially make money of value that's derived from essentially chattel labor in prisons. Mm-hmm. Like what it's, else? What what else? Where do I get my next penny? Like I don't know. It 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 is a. Um... Modern sanitized spin on slavery. It's really incredible. I, um, the uh, incarceration numbers and stuff, I haven't seen it like when I remember looking when I was younger. I, I wasn't looking at those stats or anything, but it, it was just growing and growing and growing. And then the per capita uh, per year. And here's the thing is, Lauren, is, is, we all have different experiences, but when I was in elementary school and I was screwing around with my brown and black friends, they get in trouble. I never got in trouble. What do you think happened when I was screwing around after going in the bar when I was in my 20s, right? My friends would be, who'd get in trouble? I'm not saying it was just like that. I'm saying there was the same dynamic. I could get away with things. I might have the chance to get away with things. Um, and, there, there, was there, a- there was, there's no shortage of stories that I, you know, personally have firsthand knowledge of, of white frat boys getting caught with drugs um, and having their records taken care of because their affluent parents were able to pull some strings and make some donations. And then you have the prison filled with, you know, young men and women of a different shade who yeah. didn't have the same privilege and they're paying for it with life sentences. Um, even in States where marijuana is now legal. Um, and that's what they were initially arrested for. It's, yep. You know, we you talked about the meaning of justice, and I was asked that question on a previous podcast. And I have to say that the answer I've settled on is justice is not one size fits all. Unfortunately, yeah. you yeah. know, you have very different rules for different people of different levels of, of privilege in our society. And we have to understand, acknowledge, and admit that before we can start fixing the system. And I also think that, that there should be a lot more empathy and compassion when we look at criminal activity, because it's not a level playing ground. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I really hear that. And, um, no, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for mentioning that too. And, um, you know, I think, uh, at the, at the root of it is that folks, a lot of good hearted folks, you know, who don't buy the narrative, you know, race drug narrative, um, who, who question that type of thing is, is it's, it's really important to do because even if you believe what certain components of policing, say in the American setting, like just like a middle ground, like if you agree with certain components, you have to agree that the thing is transmogrified beyond understanding that could have been 30, 35 years ago. When you see military type things on American streets for dissent, it isn't like agree or disagree. It's being like, what the hell? Like, 
why is it all that? So it feels different. So I think you can maintain a reasonable position. It's like things are seem to be so far beyond structurally and in, in the infrastructure or something. I don't know. You know, it's interesting. I think it's kind of insidious because it almost becomes like a frog swimming in gradually boiling water, the frog won't jump out. It almost loses its ability to feel the increasing heat level until it's too late. I think that because of the media and because of the content coming out of Hollywood that is, you know, broadcast into our our homes, we are used to seeing an increasingly military, a militarized version of law enforcement. And so it's not as jarring when we see it up close and personal. Go back to, you know, the early childhood days of, oh, good God, I'm trying to think of, um, what was it with Gomer Pyle? And Oh, yeah, sure. um, yeah, you know, smack your a, cap on your head. Oh, come on. That was a, that was a very really? different kind of sheriff, yeah. you know, yeah. that might as well be, you know, the 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 bully the, the the bully stick, you know, not an assault weapon. Right. Not not right. not a military grade assault weapon and kids today are growing up um seeing law enforcement officers carrying increasingly more advanced militarized weaponry and so it's not as shocking but but if it's 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 not the andy griffith (laughs) as an activist for me as an activist for myself it's always like the counterbalance what the hell do you have to protect so fiercely and why the hell are the people so pissed off at this particular moment (laughs) period there's (laughs) there's a lot of anger there's a lot of outrage in the world there really is Um, all right I, I wanted to jump in uh, a bit here, Lauren. Um, uh, talking about um, talking about art and its role, and we've been talking about activism and in 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 the search for justice. But what I wanted to what I wanted to ask you is, uh, what is art, and also what do you think art's role is? And we're talking here in March 2023. The world feels different to me and a lot of people that I talked to than it did a few years ago. Is the role change? Is is the role different now? So art and its its role today. Oh, what a, what a little question. Yeah, it's the, it's the baby one leading <laughs> to the big that's one. Not, that's not a big question at all. No, that's that's a great <laughs> question and it's a huge one. So I guess for me, I would have to say that art is pure expression. Um, And I think that there is something about that that is very universal in in its humanity, but also I think that it transcends culture, time, and place. Um, and so in a way, it's, it's, it's kind of the antidote to the Tower of Babel. <laughs> you yeah. know? It, yeah. it, it unifies us. Art, art is expression and it's unifying. Um, and I feel that it is an expression that connects emotionally. Um, 
I love that. Now, the, one of the things about the, the, the question connected to with, with the role of art, I mean, I think uh, I could speak for myself in like, I remember a particular moment, like, um, you know, I started the show before the pandemic, then the pandemic was on and entertainment changed and people talking change or what they want to do or could feel psychologically they could do change. Like all these things, um, all these things changed uh, with the show. But one of the things is I began to wonder amidst all these changes, I think one way is easy to say is like, look, human beings like whenever they're around like the sky is always falling in for some reason right it's like there's some cataclysm or apocalypse or revelations and it just happens this way humans are and they do that to create a finite amount of time so they can derive meaning for life or you know (laughs) whatever that you know whatever that is for um but what i wanted to what i wanted to see from you is is it different now? I mean, we had a discussion about justice. It seems more difficult. seems more wrong. Climate, it's getting hot. We see weird weather, whether we want to believe it or not. And things are happening. So when when you're going to make your podcast and you're creating your things, is it is it different now? Is it the struggle that the same? You know, that's interesting because I feel like there is something that, makes it more important than ever to create content that resonates. So 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 maybe the concept of audio activism that I'm striving for is because I feel that there needs to be a purpose and I feel that it's important to harness art for a reason. And 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 maybe that sounds pompous but it's also something that that there's a responsibility i feel that time is more valuable or at least it feels so maybe it's because i'm getting older uh, you know maybe it's because because it feels more precarious but i i do know that there seems to be as we said earlier you know there is no shortage of anger and outrage in the world I want to use my efforts and my time to create and support other creators who are trying to maybe ease that a bit. I I want to bring more healing and more connection um, and more good to the extent that I can. And that's why I think that I've, I've gravitated towards what I have because it seems to be a good combination of my skill set. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I could see here's something in there as far as like that hope for good. Like I was listening to this uh, podcast. Um, I might not have the exact title downs, uh, on soul recovery. Right. And, you know, it sounds a particular way, but there's this brilliant point she had made in it. And, uh, it really hit me at the time that I had heard it, it had to do with, like how you're spending your time uh, during a day and um, and when you spend it very differently and when you open up space that is geared towards uh, physical sunlight, the sunlight hope um, that I'm going to try to go at positive intent and be like, I'm going to be a pleasant or a 
something about your day that's just just a reorientation because of, of moving that way. And the just fundamental point I heard, it, which really meant a lot to me, was the the space that that shakes up and creates is where you end up trying to project. You be, end up projecting that out. You're 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 inhabiting uh, that. And I think. Um, within podcasting, within organizing, within search for justice, like that question, it seems silly to talk about, but heck, it always did. It did in the Greeks. It did right now saying what the search for, you know, justice is, is that there's something inspiring or passionate or curious and, and, and hopeful. And I know it might be an age thing. When the pandemic first started, my reaction was, we're all going to friggin' die and I haven't done shit yet. That was my reaction. Now I had done stuff. I wasn't getting down on myself. I've had a storied career serving people in labor for the longest time. Um, but I'm like, no, 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 that's not, that's not. And so whether it was creating art in whatever way that I did, I'm like, the bell's been rung for me. And it rang once that pandemic came down. I thought it was going to wipe us all out. So once I heard the bell, I can't unhear it. And it's added a greater urgency or a desire for pulling myself out of the mire and the muck and saying, yes, that's there. I can tell you all about it. I can tell you all about it, but that redirection of energy. And when you talk about, when you bring that into show and you talk about justice, it's a challenge to bring up the word. That's what a philosopher does. That's what a thinker does. And I think it's inspiring. I think it's right oriented. Like I'm not trying to convince myself, but I'm like affirming what you're saying. I think it's right oriented and people feel good and being like, shit, it feels like we're going to try something about this or I don't know. You know, yes, yes to all of that. Actually, I, you know, there's also, we talk about intention and, so one of my previous podcasts, Murder in Illinois, I revisited uh, the case of Christopher Vaughn, Christopher Vaughn who was um, convicted of killing his wife and three children. And we reexamined whether or not there was the possibility that he was wrongfully convicted. And the podcast very much comes out on the side that he was wrongfully convicted. I took so much heat for revisiting that story. I was targeted on social media. Even if you look at that podcast now, it has evenly between one stars and five stars. People thought it was a, you know, Good use of their time or, quote, unquote, the worst podcast yeah, ever yeah. made. No, no middle people, ground there. Oh, gosh. People accused me of taking on the story because I, it was my intention to leave my husband and kids and go marry Christopher Vaughn. And that's why Goodness. I wanted to get him out of prison. I mean, some really ugly stuff was tossed sure. my way. Um yeah. The beauty of it is, though, that now um, I'm about to do an update episode because um, very notable Innocence Projects are backing him. Um, And there uh, is a very significant swell of support because other people now understand what I saw and validate what we were able to uncover in that podcast. And Mm. that ties back into the audio activism. So even that, though that was an uncomfortable 
yeah. commitment to make yeah. to take on a family annihilator case. And even though I was criticized and um, really hung out to dry for a long period of time, it's ended up coming full circle because of the audio activism aspect that there are now thousands of people who have joined the mother's Facebook page and created a whole community. Yeah, yeah and starting to do something. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and offering their skills and talents to assist his yeah. new legal team. And, and so that makes me ultimately, it restores and renews my faith in the greater good. It, it really does, because it shows that when the legal system has failed, that something as simple as podcasting can become another court in which to retry a case, to retry a case yeah. in the court of public opinion, and by drawing attention to it again, perhaps compel the people in positions of power to reevaluate something that was a mistake. Yeah, and I think it's the, it's that area. I mean, I think you're going to be tightly tied to the changes in press and press media. Um, I would say that throughout my life, I've seen significant changes, print media being when I was younger and newspapers and those type of thing. And all those things have radically changed in the different forms. So uh, the question is like, you know, where do I get from my information from? How do I learn something? I heard people mentioning, which I hadn't heard in conversation like rather than Googling it, they're like, I wanted to learn how to do something. They're like, oh, just check out a podcast that talks about that. And I was like, wow, that's interesting that people are answering the questions of how to do something by potentially listening to podcasts. And that just indicated to me that people are like, somebody must have covered this. Let me listen to it for a while, which is a curiosity. That's interesting, but it's also kind of dangerous, right? You know, <laughs> when, when, who, who shall guide? Who shall guide you? <laughs> who shall guide you? Right? Well, because you know, it depends what kind of look. I the content that I create because it goes through iHeart has to be scrutinized by a legal team. Um, I don't just get to say what I want to say without being able to provide backup and it's vetted. And so yeah. there is a greater um, uh, level of authority that that has to sign off on what I say. Anybody can put out a podcast. And so you don't have yeah. a lot of vetting going on. Yeah, but I point. also think we were going back to the difference in um, – in in journalism, because of popularity that we started talking about in the beginning with music, um, you have stuff is being dictated by search engine search engine optimization. So it's more about what people are clicking on on websites that ultimately is driving the content for a lot of mainstream news, and so. It's difficult to know. Well, it's my my analogy I, is, is the bookstore analogy. And it's like, um, you know, when if, if, if you if you know what you're looking for exactly, then you already have it. Right. It's that Plato riddle in there. And then if you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to be able to pull it in 
when you see it. So there, there's this discovery in encountering like on bookshelves in an environment of being like, I don't know what I'm going to find. I need to be situated in the right place for these things to happen. You know, and the podcast might be that type of thing for learning or, um, yeah. And it's also not, you know, every, I, you know, for podcasting, everybody does it for different reasons, but, you know, I think it leads to some misconceptions because, you know, I mean, I, I'm almost not the way that I do it, but 50 year old, like white appearing male podcast. Wow. This sounds super exciting. Let me run towards this, you know, but it's, um, it, it, there are people who are doing, who are committed to it, doing podcasts over time. And those are podcasters over time. And there's 4 trillion other things, no shade on anybody, everybody give it a go. But yeah, there are those things, but it's, there's a difference between, you know, sustained creation and exploration and not, that's all. And, um, I see and bump into a lot of great shows where folks are committed to, their learning or their mission and what they're doing. And, and, and that's why I get excited about a field now that I was like, eh, this is where I'll get to talk and meet some interesting people like Lauren Bright Pacheco or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what? But look, that in and of itself, gosh, sign me up for any field where I get to meet exciting, interesting people. Yeah. You know, I, that's yeah. that. That, that that is what makes me tick. I I love I love listening to people. I love talking to people. So so I guess I, I've kind of found my my perfect field. There we go. We're both well situated at the moment. I uh wanted uh I wanted to ask you um about uh the uh murder in in Oregon. And it's a strange way. I, I, what I wanted to do is mention some impressions that I had on it. Okay. And um, I'll also mention a curious listening, listening habit. So it'll be worth your while. So um, uh, listen to murder in Oregon and folks uh, listeners uh, by Lauren Bright Pacheco. You can find it uh, all your podcast places, but it's uh, uh, I'm not going to give all the details. I'm going to tell you my impressions. Um, so it's, it's about a, uh, murder killing of, uh, the head of the department of corrections at the end of the 1980s in, in, in Oregon. Now I grew up out East in Rhode Island and I've been in Oregon for about 10, 11 years. So I don't know the stories that would have popped up and, 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 and hearing about it, um, it was just such a, uh, heart-wrenching and scary exposition of true corruption, cover-up, silencing, erasing. Um, that's, that's, that, that's the story. Um, but it had this eerie piece to it. I, um, I'm in Albany, Oregon, 20 minutes away from Salem. And I was able to go to the spot where there's the memorial. Uh, and I felt super weird all of a sudden. The reason why is because I could hear your description throughout murder in Oregon. And I, I didn't know you're always like, this is close. It's nearby talking about the situation, how events happen in proximity, but then standing there and saying, Holy shit. Like I'm in the spot now in my way of understanding was conceptual what you told me, but it's very uh, much placed now. 
So the strange listening habit uh, with Murder in Oregon also happened with an, another podcast I listened to is that um, I listen to podcasts at night sometimes. My partner, Jenny, who falls asleep before I do. And I listen to the whole podcast. And then the next day, if she's falling asleep too early, maybe within the first 50 minutes, I listen to it again. So, um, anyways, I'm a repeat listener of your podcast because of that, because of my relationship habits. Um, I probably listened to the last couple. I, I, I tell you no word of a lie because of this strange habit. I've probably listened to at least the first half of the episodes of Murder in Miami at least six times a piece. Oh my gosh. You because like I'm still awake. I'm still awake. I'm like, I'll just finish the episode again. Um, you sound like me because um, Phil Stamford, who uh, is the former journalist for the Oregonian who um, is the reason why I did Murder in Oregon and ultimately the reason I ended up doing Murder in Miami. Yeah, yeah. He said, how many times do you listen to each episode? And I kid you not, I'm probably in the 30, 30 to 40 times because every single thing I, I i tweak back and forth so so good you're next to me and 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 my editors you're probably the person who's listened to it most i gotta i gotta i gotta admit to uh just to add on i just released an episode of melissa oliveri yesterday and now i'm starting to notice in consecutive like things like these obsessions i talked about my obsession with albums and when I get a new album of listening to an entire album every day for a period of time, and I described openly and with deep pride listening to Taylor Swift's 1989 for 18 straight months, once a day, every day. So, you know, what I'm saying is I probably eased into this weird habit of, okay, let's do it again. And it's at nighttime anyway, so it's all nighttime so it doesn't matter, but uh, it wafted into my head five or six times. So no ill effects yet, unless you can identify <laughs> any. <laughs> I would say with the Taylor Swift thing, I think my daughter could give you a run for your money. She's 21 and Taylor Taylor is her, her end-all, be-all. And then I will tell you that my husband would probably say that he feels sorry for you because you next to him have, probably has to hear my voice the most before you fall asleep at night. <laughs> I'm, I'm the queen of saying... Are you still awake? <laughs> oh, it is, <laughs> and, and, and talking to him, keeping him up at night. Yeah, no, that is that is uh, the the voice thing. I think for anybody who tries to create and perform is like is 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 super strange. I know that there's this idea within a podcast and in transcript where there's a verbal a uh, word representation of the work that we do, and then those words are compiled. And I'm like. <laughs> I've been talking on this show for an amount of like almost a week. If you listen to it together, and I said I'm a little bit scared, a little bit inspired <laughs> to find out what word was mentioned 3,620 times over. <laughs> going going back to you standing at the dome building because you sent me a picture yeah, when you yeah. were there. You texted yeah. it to me. Um, yeah. yeah, I 
it was very interesting because I had read so much and researched so much and and spoken to Michael Frankie's brothers, Pat and Kevin, so many times yeah. before I actually got to go there. Um, and I went and visited it with them. And, um, you know, they have a very different um, it's it's become a place where they go to connect with their brother yeah. now. Um, it's a way of feeling connected to him. And I think it's really a big part of why Kevin is still in Salem. But I felt, I felt it too. When, when I stood there, um, with them, that is still to me uh, to have a public official, um, who's assassinated outside the the building where he works the night before he was going to present his findings on corruption within his department in front of a legislative committee on the topic. That's right. And it remains unsolved. And the only thing we know that we know can for sure is that Frank Gable did not kill Michael Frankie. Right. That's the one thing you know for sure. Yeah. But they're not looking for the people who were actually responsible because yeah. it's too inconvenient and too messy. And that well, uh, that goes back to injustice. That goes back to corruption. That goes back to. Well, there's a disproportional. So I, I'm at that site and talking about that. It's, it's, it's disproportional for me because I can tell you because I think unique responses to this type of thing in similar experience are interesting. So I had started by being over at the Salem Hospital which is the connected to the filming of one flew over to cuckoo's nest. And, um, and it's a very unique, uh, fascinating experience for me. And there's a lot of energies. I saw two people saging themselves walking out of that place. It's Oregon, but you know, cause it's just <laughs> weird. And I mm. couldn't find where the dome, but I, I know Salem a little bit. It's a, it's kind of a mystery to me, um, but I didn't know where the, I've been around there, but I'm usually popping here and somebody's telling me to go there and over by the, the memorial. And I tell you, for me, the proportionality was by hearing, and I'm not trying to idolize. I only know the story from you and I know, but, but seeing somebody who represents, I am going to call out the filth in this system and I'm going to do it against the most powerful and then he's off. Um, but for me, knowing that that was behind it, I walk up and want a statue. And it's a strange statue time. I want a statue, you know, and that's what I want. That's what I want to see. I want to see something that's there. And he has a memorial, and that's very meaningful. And they're beautiful objects. And it was a different experience. And it was probably even better. But I was just telling you, my initial reaction was being like, there was something bigger that was represented here and this is humble and this is small, but sometimes small <laughs> is for a very particular reason. And, uh, it was complicated. So the really interesting thing about that statue is that it, um, was created by inmates. And, and I guess we should describe wow. it. It's really yeah, kind yeah. of like Go a ahead. plaque that almost looks yeah. like a podium. Yeah. And it has this really beautiful metalwork surrounding it that is almost 
an inlay and a sculpture at the same time of vines going up the side of it. And so it looks like it's almost kind of sprung from the earth. So yeah. it is, is very kind of organic and and very much a part of the landscape at the same time. And so it's it's very beautiful. And yes, yeah. I stood there with 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 Pat and Kevin, and they like to go there and share a beer with Mike. And so, if you go there and there's a can of beer, don't take it as a sign of disrespect. It's probably something that's been left by one of his brothers. Yeah, it's like going to Kerouac's grave in Lowell, Massachusetts, <laughs> <laughs> or, or Morrison's grave in Paris. Oh my gosh. Yeah, my uh, my my brother lives over in Lowell, Massachusetts. Last time I was visiting him, I was able to go buy the Kerouac stuff, uh, uh, which which I which I adore. So um, yeah, that was uh, thank you, for, and it was it was nice to share with you because uh, I think um, sensitivity to stories as a listener, sensitivity to uh, injustice, things going wrong, not getting rid of being able to get rid of the pissed offness residue you know after things is a real is a real you know experience and um so i found it you know very very powerful in that and um the quest for justice within that show um listeners from unexpected directions and support and people uh, standing up it's very inspirational as difficult it is to to move through it's not inspirational about the justice system per se inspirational inspirational about people fighting yeah uh, i was i was really humbled by the people who were willing to speak with me for that because yeah. they did so knowing that it would create serious levels of discomfort within some of the social circles that they moved in Sure. And sure. and it's 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 always very um, inspiring to me when people in positions of power do the right thing for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask you the big question because I don't want to linger in out there too, too, too much like longer. I never know when to ask it. It's uh, one of those philosophical thud questions. But um I know you got it. Is the why uh, Lauren Bright Pacheco? Is there something rather than nothing? Because there has to be. Yeah. There has to be. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point? <laughs> I love creating some things and, uh, I, I know, I know, uh, I know you do. I know the power of, um, you know, in, or at least I'm connecting to the deeper potential of what art does for us and seeing remapping brains and seeing what hope kind of inspiration, because it isn't there's that there's stuff to get down over. It's been in, it's been in spades for a while for a lot of folks. It's about like being inspired by the idea. And like, even for us predicating the conversation, obviously in my head on Plato and, you know, who, when it comes to art is one of the greatest writers, I think in the Western tradition, as far as a storyteller, but also like the deep explorations of you must consider the answer to the question, what is justice? 
in order to try to um, arrive at it. And after I had um, been thinking about more of this question uh, with you, I uh, ran into speculative science fiction, indigenous uh, science fiction by B.L. Blanchard called The Peacekeepers, which presented a theoretical model of a non-colonized Americas. And one cool thing was, Lauren, was I didn't have to delve with the questions. A lot of questions brought up right then. I was able to delve with them speculatively only because the sequence was I was reading about a uh, a future, a written uh, future or, or a different alt history and was able to engage with the same type of questions. Like there was a restorative justice model, but they're like, this shit isn't like perfect either. Like, don't worry about it, you know? Um, so I was able to explore in a speculative way some of the very issues that we're talking about. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm glad how that how that worked out. It made me feel a little bit better. Oh, well, that's a good one. Because you know what? Look, the truth is that there is no such thing as perfection if it's created by humans. We're imperfect by nature. <laughs> yeah. And so there has to be the struggle of 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 striving for something that's closer to perfection. And maybe that is why there's something rather than nothing. There we go. It's we hit that, it one way or the striving. other. You yes. get three, you get three dart throws. <laughs> you get three dart throws at, at, at each round. Um, so uh, we've been talking with Lauren Bright Pacheco and Lauren, I wanted to say is uh, a little bit early. I know you're very busy and do a lot of things. I, we've been talking for a bit, but I very deliberately said, I'm not even going to interrupt or, allow for this <laughs> topic so i just kept recording but um what i wanted to ask you uh lauren if you could convey to the listeners just you know your podcast is everywhere but how, how what you'd like to say how you'd like to tell folks how to encounter um the work that you do the work that you've done well you can find me um on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And um, I am on Twitter where I'm trying to be a lot less political <laughs> than I have been in the past. I don't even know what you would um, do on Twitter. No recommendations, but yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not exactly a huge Twitter presence, but I am there. Um, I also am on Instagram, but it's a private account because I got so many um threats uh, when I was doing murder in Illinois that I just made it private. Not everybody um, was asking you, why is there something rather than nothing in there? <laughs> no, exactly. No, no. They were wishing death on myself and my children. It's horrible. Um, uh, it, is, it is horrible, but you know what? The good news is, as I said, um, there is um, really momentum uh, behind getting Christopher Vaughn, who is an innocent man, and I can't think of the only thing worse than what happened to his wife and three children is the thought that he could have been wrongfully convicted for their murders and that's what's happened. And so I'm willing to take some nastiness on social media if it means doing something good for somebody who was it's, so it's it's a it's a it's a tough process. Uh I've uh, spent some time as a as a union organizer in my days and uh I don't know, just on the top uh, 2,000 professions. I'm not sure where we uh, rank when it comes to we're, – we're, we're loved by some, you know, and uh, 
not well liked by many others. So it 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 can be it can be difficult when you know there are threats for what you're representing, uh, what you're trying to do, and those are significant. It's not an easy uh, thing, but I think everybody, when you're fighting or you're upholding a belief system or pursuing something, you know. You know, you know, there's going to be a couple rocks that come in at 60 degrees from a direction you didn't expect. And it's unsettling, but you like you carry through it. But, um, hey, and if anybody gives you any trouble, Lauren, just let me know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I got a friend. <laughs> it knows, it knows, it knows some union people. This isn't the L.A. people calling the NYC people. I'm in I'm in rural Oregon and. uh <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, of course, find, uh, the, the podcast, all, uh, uh, all the places. And, um, what about the couple of, uh, podcasts that people might not be aware of that I mentioned that you get more of a production yeah, role? I, yeah. I, I also, um, have been pretty, pretty fortunate to work with some really incredibly talented people. Um, Leanne Rhymes, the country western superstar is yeah. also a really wonderful human being with a very interesting interest in spirituality and and, and spreading goodness into the world sure. and she has a great podcast um called holy human and then steve green um steve greenberg has an incredible podcast called speed of sound yeah. which we did a season on and i'm hoping to get another season and then i also have a medical mystery podcast called symptomatic and that draws attention to um, the struggles that people face when they are dealing with um, uh, illness that can take decades to properly diagnose yeah yeah well thank uh thank you for mentioning those and um you know i i think if you do you know, a lot of high quality things like you've done over time and you have different roles within it too. It's one of the things is I've done the show and just, uh, deeper learning in newer areas because it's a variety show. I don't have deep background in opera. I have a healthy, curious interest and I learn as I, as I go, but it's just like trying to, you know, navigate and, and explore. Um, Thank you for mentioning all those, all those options. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk, uh, talk about my America's most wanted extra story, which I think I saved, uh, for you. I'm like, she's going to be the one that's going to, that's going to like this. Uh, I, I want to see the clip now. Um, <laughs> the tape. I will. Um, I, I've been looking at some of the videos that I've done in, in the past. And I get to tell you, I ran into one where I would played, uh, the CEO of Chase Manhattan bank, uh, Jamie diamond, and street theater in Madison, Wisconsin in 2010. And, uh, it was uh, a performance that I forgot about, but, uh, I liked it. It was quite, send it, it was, send it. I'll send it. That. I, it. It still exists on video. So we'll, um, definitely share that. I mean, I guess it was indication when I was doing the labor stuff back then. Um, I wanted some more showman type of opportunities than were presently, uh, being granted. So that was a lot of fun, but, um, thank you so much for your time. I do, uh, really view it as, um, a distinct pleasure to connect with what you create, but I'm just talking about the bigger stuff that I try to, uh, on this show and also the enthusiasm for podcasting and hearing how you moved into it and grow and learn about how you want to tell 
uh, stories within it. it. It means a lot to hear that and to, to have this connection with you, Lauren. So I just wanted to let you know that before before you depart. I appreciate that. It's really, really been nice getting to know you better and, and to having this conversation. Yeah. All right. So everybody check out uh, Lauren's uh, podcast. Highly recommended. You don't have to. I'm not obligating listeners to six listens or downloads per episode, as might be the case with me. (laughs) If you want to approach the world in a more understandable for outsiders way of going about the world, you can listen to it once. But um, thank you so much, Lauren, and um, hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. This is Something Rather Than Nothing 